Luke chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 51 all the way to the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 9, verse 51 to 62. This is God's Word to us. When the days drew near for Him to be taken up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. And He sent messengers ahead of Him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for Him. But the people did not receive Him because His face was set toward Jerusalem. And when His disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do You want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And He turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to Him, I will follow You wherever You go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Please pray with me. Holy God, Father, Son, Spirit, You are the triune, living King of the universe. And we just submit to You this morning. We understand that Your Word has truth in there that we need. And we need You to apply it to our hearts this morning, God. So please help us to understand this Word. Help us to know how to apply it, to live it out. I pray, dear God, that You would be among us. That this would not just be a speech, but that Your Holy Spirit would be moving through me, Lord. I'm in such need of You right now, God. I stand up here as a dying man before dying men. And we all are so desperately in need of You. And I pray, Holy Spirit, You would come now and speak to us. We love You. We anticipate that You will come and we are going to yield when You do. We love You and we praise You in Christ's name. We give You all these things for Your glory and Your glory alone. Amen. Amen. So back in 1915, a young Portuguese girl named Constance embarked on the greatest journey of her life. She was born and raised in this little village in Lisbon that had no running water no electricity. It was a hard life, but it was a simple life and mostly a good one, but not for long. At the young age of three, Constance's life would take this dramatic turn for the worse. In that year, her mother died, and it was down to her and her father until her father quickly remarried. And almost right off the pages of Cinderella, her stepmother was this wicked woman who neglected her and mistreated her and even just denied her basic things like shoes to wear or the chance to go to school. And eventually, her family life became so trying that she reached this breaking point, this crucial turning point in her life where she was just resolved to go in another direction. And like so many Europeans at the time, the allure of a newer, better life in America just gripped her thinking. Uh, So as a 17-year-old, Constance set off on this journey by herself. She saved up enough money to board a ship, to cross the Atlantic, to go to America. 
And uh, it was a risky move, uh, for sure. She was thinking through whether or not she should do this, just considering all of the costs, all of the demands that this would take. This journey would mean leaving everything she has ever known. It would mean having no family. It would mean having no friends. It would mean being in a new country, learning a new language, immersed in a new culture. It would mean fighting and clawing every day just to survive. But she believed that the journey would be worth the demand. So she stood there and she stepped foot on the boat and her journey began. Today's text also shows us the beginning of a journey. And it's not the journey of some young girl from Portugal to America. It's the journey of Jesus and his disciples from Galilee to Jerusalem. In uh, chapter 9, verse 51, all the way to the middle of chapter 19, uh, those, those passages are just saturated with this journey motif. And they also show us, this text today also shows us what Jesus' journey towards saving his people is going to be like, but not only that. The text also communicates what our journey of following Jesus will be like. And in both cases, the journey will be demanding. Uh, First, we see that Jesus' journey towards saving His people was demanding. Look back at verses 51 to 56. When the days drew near for Him to be taken up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem, and He sent messengers ahead of Him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for Him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and he rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Now, one of the demands that Jesus will face on his journey towards Jerusalem is going to be his own rejection. The first stop on this journey to Jerusalem is this village in Samaria. And uh, that's a significant thing because there's all kinds of animosity between the Jews and between the Samaritans. The Samaritans were people of mixed heritage. They were half Jewish. They were half uh, Gentile. They had all of these different sorts of religious beliefs and practices sort of infused into Judaism. And for that purpose, the Jews just looked down on the Samaritans. And they not only looked down on them, they despised them. They hated, hated the, the, the Samaritans. They reviled these people. Now geographically, Galilee's in the north. Samaria's in the middle. Jerusalem is in the south. And due to all the animosity from, from, from the Jews to the Samaritans, many Jews living in Galilee, traveling to Jerusalem, would travel around Samaria just for the purpose of avoiding the people and the place altogether. But not Jesus. He doesn't turn a three-day journey into a much longer one. He takes this straight shot from Galilee to Jerusalem through Samaria. He's unafraid to minister to the enemies of his people. So that's his plan. The journey to Jerusalem is underway. His first stop is this village in Samaria. And he sends these messengers out before him. And they're preparing the way. They're preparing for him to stop and to stay in this uh, Samaritan village. But what happens in the Samaritan village? What takes place there? Jesus is rejected. Now by this point in time, Jesus is growing, fully, he's growing accustomed to being rejected by his own people. 
I mean, remember back to Luke chapter 4 when he's standing in a synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth and he's sharing the word and he's sharing truth. We read in verses 28 and 29, this was the response. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. He's being rejected in his own community. We also see it in chapter 6 of uh, Luke's Gospel. He's just healed this man with the withered hand. And the response of the scribes and the Pharisees, it says, is that, that they were filled with fury. And they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And while Jesus is rejected and he's questioned among his own people, what takes place here in this Samaritan village lets us know that the rejection of Jesus is not going to be contained to the, to, to the community of the Jews. It is going to be far more widespread and extensive than that. Verse 53, But the people did not receive Him because His face was set toward Jerusalem. The cause of the rejection is that these Samaritans would not receive a Jew bound for Jerusalem on the mission which Jesus was on. So Jews are not the only ones rejecting Jesus for who He is and for what He is doing. Other people are rejecting Him as well. And it's so interesting because in the book of Acts, we see peoples from many nations coming to receive Christ. But the Bible also communicates that people from all over the place are going to come and reject Him. That uh, rejection of Jesus is going to span geographic and ethnic borders as well. So His mission requires this journey. And the journey is going to be demanding. And one of the demands is His own rejection. Another demand that Jesus, is, Jesus faces is just dealing with his own mixed up disciples. Jesus has to bear with these mixed up disciples. Look at verses 54 and 56. And when his disciples, <clears throat> James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Not only does Jesus' rejection uh, in Samaria shed some light on what this journey is going to be like, but so does the way that these disciples respond to that rejection. Look at what these guys are suggesting here. They are asking Jesus if they should summon fire from heaven to destroy these Samaritans. They're asking as if this was a good idea. Now, these men are clearly zealous for Jesus and for his cause. And they may, may even be thinking back to uh, 2 Kings chapter 1 when Elijah is amongst these Samaritans who are not honoring God. And Elijah summons heavenly fire to consume them. And that's perfectly acceptable in that context. But though these guys are passionate for Jesus, and while that is so admirable, it's just so misplaced. And it is so reckless here. These disciples are not understanding why Jesus is setting His face to Jerusalem in the first place. They're not understanding why He's embarked on this journey in the first place. He's going to Jerusalem for the sake of saving sinners. That is why Jesus is on this journey. And their request is inappropriate here. Because Jesus' judgment, final judgment, is not coming right then. That was not the time. Jesus has been teaching them these things all along. As, as, he, as he preached the Beatitudes to them, He's preaching them in part this message of uh, being merciful and a peacemaker and during persecution and, and trial and hardship. 
Luke chapter 9, when he sends out the 12 in verse 5, uh, Jesus fully anticipates that this day is coming, that these guys going out into all these villages and towns are going to be rejected. And he tells them exactly what to do when that day comes. He says, And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Shake off the dust. Does that sound like summon heavenly fire to consume them and to destroy them on the spot? It does not. And these verses aren't minimizing the importance of receiving Christ either. Certainly, if these Samaritans continue to reject Jesus, they will be on the receiving end of God's judgment at some point. But it's clear that what Jesus is saying, His response to the disciples, makes it clear that now is not the time. It's not the time for that. The rejectors will go, will go punished. They'll, they'll, they'll get punished. Now is not the time, guys. Jesus' response is actually to flip the rebuke around, isn't it? Rather than consuming these guys on the spot, he actually rebukes his own disciples. And uh, it couldn't be more clear. Verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them. So as we've discussed over the last couple of weeks, a portion of Jesus' energy and his time and his ministry is devoted to correcting his disciples, to to bearing with their failures and showing them the way that is, that is right. This is called discipleship. Jesus is enduring their failures to teach them to walk with Him in truth and wisdom and faithfulness so that they might be prepared to go out and to train others also. And based on their propensity to mess up in their thinking, in their heart attitude, with their actions, with their words, bearing with these guys is certainly a demand on Jesus. So Jesus' journey has not been off to a good start so far, has it? He's completely rejected in the first village he enters. Uh, His own disciples are misunderstanding yet again his whole mission for coming to the point where he has to rebuke them. Not off to a good start, but the journey continues and we actually see it's going to get tougher for Jesus. The demands of Jesus' journey will actually be far more extensive than what we just saw, that he will endure persecution on the road to Jerusalem. He will suffer and he will die, culminating in the cross. Look at verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So much like Constance faced that sort of turning point moment when she was just resolved, I'm leaving. I'm going in another direction. That's Jesus here. That's a little hinge verse in in Luke's Gospel that shows us he's shifting his focus and his attention from this ministry in Galilee because he's now focusing on Jerusalem. The passage is introduced with this loaded phrase. He says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up. It's this reference to the resurrection and to the ascension. Already as readers, Luke is drawing our attention to this is where the road is going to end. That Jesus is going to die. He's going to be raised. He's going to ascend. Already as readers, we're being alerted. This is where it's going. The day is drawing near for Jesus. And the crucifixion and the ascension are coming by God's plan. This little verb which is translated in verse 51 as drew near, actually means to fulfill. So another way of glossing that verse is to say when the days were fulfilled for him to be taken up. 
It just shows us that God is orchestrating all of these happenings around Jesus. He's, he's totally in control of Jesus' life and his ministry, which will culminate in the cross and in the empty tomb and with Jesus returning to his heavenly Father. All of those things are within the, the grasp of Almighty God. But then Luke narrates this. He says, And Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. It's mentioned twice in this passage. Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. And what the phrase means is that Jesus was resolved to do this. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. And the question is why? What is so special about Jerusalem? What is going to happen in Jerusalem that has just taken up all of Jesus' attention to the point where He has turned His face from Galilee to Jerusalem? Where he is, he's so focused on Jerusalem. He's embarking on this journey to Jerusalem. What is going on in Jerusalem or will happen in Jerusalem that is taking all of this attention and focus of Jesus? Well, in Jerusalem, we are given the best insight into the demands of his journey. It's there that we find he will encounter the greatest opposition. Flip to the end of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 23. Luke 23, verses 21 to 25. It says this, But they, and that's speaking of this Jerusalem crowd, this crowd in Jerusalem, but they kept, they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify Him! And a third time He, and that's Pilate, Pontius Pilate, and a third time He said to them, Why? What evil has He done? I have found in Him no guilt-deserving death. I will therefore punish and release Him. But they were urgent demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. Guys, this is a taste of the opposition that Jesus will encounter in Jerusalem. Crowds of people, mobs of people are calling for him to be crucified, coming up, opposing him. Just a taste of what he will encounter. And while he will be opposed in Jerusalem, we also know he will suffer in Jerusalem. He will suffer physically. John chapter 19, verses 1 and 2 says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. If you skip down to verse 16, it says, So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. He is beaten, he is flogged, he is mocked, and he is nailed to a cross in Jerusalem. He suffers physically. He doesn't just suffer physically, he also suffers spiritually. Mark chapter 15, verse 34. And at the ninth hour, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the one time in all of eternity, the Father is separated from and forsaken by, uh, or the Son is separated from and forsaken by the Father as he takes the sins of humanity upon himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that Jesus became sin on the cross. 
Galatians chapter 3 tells us that He became a curse on the cross so much so that the Father in that moment had to look away and forsake His Son. So Jesus suffered spiritually as well. And while we know that He was uh, opposed, and while He suffered physically and spiritually, we also know He dies on a cross in Jerusalem. Here's the point of everything we've talked about. Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, which includes rejection, which includes bearing with His mixed up disciples, which includes enduring opposition and suffering and His own death, was carried out for you. Because our sin, which is so offensive to God, separated us from God and broke our relationship with Him and it put us in this hopeless situation where we are now slaves to our sin. We are dead in our sin. We are unable to free ourselves from that sin. Yet, while God is this God who cannot bear with our uh, rebellion forever. While He is just, He is also merciful. And He's gracious. And though our sins were so great, He sent His only Son to hang on that cross as our substitute to redeem us from the power and the penalty and the presence of that sin. So Jesus died for you. And He took uh, the, the, the wrath of God that, was, that, was deserving by, that you deserve, He took that upon Himself and He paid the penalty Himself. And He not only conquered our sin, He conquered the grave and He rose and on the third day and now He lives at the right hand of God advocating for you. So if you would only trust in Him, repent of your sin, trust in Him as your Lord and your Savior, the holy God of the universe now looks down on you and He doesn't see a sinner covered in the blackness and the filth of your own transgression. He looks down on you and He sees the purity and the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ, who shed His blood on your behalf. So while this journey looks like such a failure in so many respects, it ends in victory because of what the Son of God accomplished for you. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the true Israel, Isaiah's suffering servant, the Word, our perfect prophet, priest, and King, our Redeemer, our Messiah, our Christ, and our Savior, set His face to Jerusalem, endured this demanding road to the cross for you. And that's how we apply this text. Understanding who He is and what He has endured for us. His journey of achieving your freedom was costly. It cost Him His life, but He was willing to do it because for Jesus, the journey was worth the demand. Now how do we respond to Jesus traveling this road to Jerusalem with the cross in view, knowing what He would have to suffer to redeem and to liberate sinners like us? How do we respond? Well, I'm not going to make the mistake of assuming everyone in this room is a Christian. And if you're not, if you have questions about it, if you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, you do exactly what I just talked about. You place your faith in Him. You repent of your sins. You confess Him as Lord. And you receive the forgiveness that only He could provide for you. And then as a believer, we live in light of the cross. 
And the Bible demands that kingdom living, living means following Jesus. And if Jesus, our Savior, was willing to walk this demanding road for us, then we walk a demanding road for Him. And the truth is, His journey, as demanding as it was, His journey to the cross informs our journey of following Him. So know, Christian, that your journey of following Jesus is also demanding. Admittedly, to describe uh, the journey of following Jesus as demanding is this gross taming down of what Jesus actually says, right? I mean, we read the text. Um, And I think that the uh, temptation from a preaching standpoint here is to kind of water down what Jesus actually says and make it a little more palatable for everybody. Uh, But I don't want to do that. Um, What Jesus actually says to his disciples is bold, it is shocking, it is borderline scary, and it's revealed to us in these three conversations with these three travelers on the road to Jerusalem. First, we learn that following Jesus is costly. Verses 57 and 58. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So this unnamed person uh, initiates this conversation with Jesus, and he says, Lord, I will follow you. And Jesus' response is pretty weird, isn't it? I mean, don't you think he would say, awesome, great, come on, man, jump on board. We'd love to have you. The more the merrier. But that's not what he says. He's almost trying to talk him out of it. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's this shocking statement about what life uh, on the road to Jerusalem is going to be like. And if Jesus is going to suffer, if his life is like this, then those following him, it's going to be the same for them. So Jesus is saying, you want to follow me? Great. Let me warn you. You should probably know, even birds and foxes have dwelling places, but not me. And not those who follow me. You want to follow me? Be prepared to go homeless, not knowing where you sleep at night. Now Jesus is communicating a principle here. It is a principle, and the principle is if you want to follow Jesus, be prepared to make real sacrifices. Because the journey with Jesus is going to be costly. So count the cost. Because sacrifice is part of the deal. Jesus completely shatters the notion that following Him is going to be easy. It won't be. The Christian journey of following Jesus Christ will not be easy. I cannot say it any more clearly than that. It's difficult. It's costly. It is demanding. And Jesus knows what's coming for these disciples, for these followers on the road, and for you and for I. So He tells us the truth up front. It's going to be costly. Listen to what the Apostle Paul endured in following Christ. This comes from 2 Corinthians 11.24-28. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys. In danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. 
in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. This man is paying the cost of following Jesus. The writer of the Hebrews discusses these Old Testament figures and the demanding road that they walked in following God. Listen to this, Hebrews 11, 35-38. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in the dens of caves of the earth. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves. Living as a wanderer. Does that sound similar to what Jesus just said? The Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. And as we sit here this morning, there are Christians in this world who are in house arrest. We have brothers and sisters huddled in some little corner, some little secret place somewhere praying together to the God of the universe that He would just give them the, 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 the strength to persevere because they cannot go out openly to pray. We have people who are brothers and sisters in the church with us who are being threatened and abducted and tortured right now this morning. These things are really happening because people are unwilling to compromise the way they follow Jesus Christ. The extreme realities of this text. uh, That the road will be challenging. That standing for Christ will be demanding and costly. Are real for Christians throughout history and all over the globe this morning. And as much as our culture is moving away from Christ, the danger for us in the West is to be casual with the way that we follow Him. Following Christ oftentimes means very little to us. We are so rarely willing to be made uncomfortable for the sake of Jesus Christ. Let's be honest. We hem and we haw because we wake up on a Sunday morning and it's beautiful outside. Man, it's been a long week. I would love to just sleep in and relax. I can always go to church and worship the God of the universe freely with other believers next week. Or we, we oftentimes, in conversation with this, this neighbor who's lost an unbeliever and the Holy Spirit's stirring us up and that thought hits, you know what, I probably should share the Gospel with this person, but it might be really uncomfortable, so probably not. No. If Christ is everything to us, so much so that we are willing to sacrifice and endure criticism and hardship and even die for the sake of of Him. We are Christians. Nobody and no force in this world ought to deter us from following Jesus Christ. But is that your approach to following your Savior? I was reading this article this week that was uh, comparing... um, Uh, Well, it was examining our culture from a Christian perspective, and it was comparing the American church to uh, the church, uh, or to to where God's people were previously in different periods when they were in exile. And um, it was the author's contention, and I agree, that we've been in this place 
similar to where the early church was in Athens, where uh, we're, we're more or less ignored. They're an afterthought. People didn't really care if you were a Christian. It's not a big deal. It didn't garner a whole lot of attention. Not a big deal. And that's sort of what Christian life has been like in our country for a while. And according to the author, um, he sees signs where we are moving in this direction that's more like God's people when they were in Babylon, in exile, where culture at large is growing hostile to Christianity. Not only that, but you live in one of the most unreached metropolitan areas in the world. Uh, Boston is currently 2.1% evangelical Christian, uh, this far away from being considered an unreached people group. So if, if, if you are uh, in a culture that's increasingly hostile to the gospel, and you're living in this city in particular, you are unbelievably outnumbered. And if it's true that this country is trending in this direction toward limiting Christian freedom, and if you live in this city packed with unbelievers that are so desperately in need of Christ, that are living and dying without the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ every day, and if you are actually going to take seriously the commission of Jesus Christ to you, then a time is coming when following Christ will be much more demanding for us. When you will have to really think about what cost you are willing to pay for the sake of Christ. Jesus warns this traveler. He says, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. What costs are you willing to pay for the sake of Christ? If you're not even willing to wake up on time, early on a Sunday morning, to be to church on time, or to step out and to have an uncomfortable conversation with the neighbor, what does that say about the way you are following Christ? So ask, are you willing to have that uncomfortable conversation? Are you willing to go without a meal? Are you willing to have no bed for the night? Are you willing to make some sacrifice or to give out of your need? Or to go someplace undesirable? Are you even willing to die for the sake of following Jesus Christ? If you understand who He is and what He has endured for you and what He has purchased for you and what He means for you, and if you're following Him truly, your answer is yes. That's easy to say. That is really hard to live out. So be critical in examining your heart, but examine your heart. Is that your answer? What costs are you willing to pay for Christ? So Jesus' words convey that following Jesus is this costly thing for those who are His people. Uh, We also learn that following Jesus requires prioritizing Him over and against everything else. Look at verses 59 and 60. To another, He said, follow Me. But He said, Lord, let me first go and bury My Father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So this last traveler came out and he was the initiator, right? He said, I'll follow you, Lord. This time, Jesus is the one who initiates it with the second traveler. And uh, on the surface, this guy's response is super reasonable. He says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now culturally, um, the traveler's request was not unusual. It was this major obligation in their culture to bury a dead relative. And uh, actually, even to just delay in the task would have been this disgraceful thing to do. So 
Jesus' response to this man and to this request is again against the grain. Jesus says, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, that phrase, let the dead bury their own dead, uh, some interpreters see that first mention of the word dead as referring to spiritually dead people. So they would interpret that as saying, let unbelievers bury themselves. As for you, be concerned with the kingdom. Which that interpretation makes sense because if they're both literal dead people, how could dead bury other dead people? Which is actually the other interpretation. And those proponents of that view just say, Jesus is using this extreme example. He's saying all these shocking things along the way. This is another one. However you want to interpret that, Jesus' point is just as audacious. He's saying you have temporal concerns in this world. You even have good obligations, but nothing, nothing takes priority over me and my kingdom. The point is not that it's wrong for believers to bury dead relatives. That is perfectly okay. Not a problem there. That's not what Jesus is saying. This is a principle. And the principle is prioritize me over and against every other earthly, worldly, temporal concern. I am more important. Following me is more important. My kingdom is more important. I must come first in your heart and in your life. Jesus tells this traveler, prioritize me and go and proclaim the kingdom. It's this razor-sharp call to discipleship and this complete reorientation toward kingdom driven living, but is that you? Is following Jesus your greatest priority? Do you wake up in the morning and discipline yourself? Lord Jesus, I want to honor You today. You're everything to me. I, 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 just want, I just want to be close to You. I want to be near to You. I want You to take my life as, and redeem it somehow for the sake of Your glory. Is that You? Are you in constant dialogue with the Lord? Conversation with the Lord through prayer? Are you wrestling with? Are you studying God's Word regularly? Are you willing to put things down and cut things out and rearrange things in your life so that you have time to know God and to serve God and to love God? Or is knowing Jesus and serving Jesus the thing that is routinely getting cut out and squeezed in and rearranged. Where are your priorities? Following Jesus means that He is your priority over everything else. So Jesus is pretty bold with us here. It's one of those texts that's just it's weighty. It is a tough thing to hear, almost. So following Jesus, and in those words, He's telling us it's costly. It requires prioritizing Him. And we also find out that following Jesus means Focus commitment. Verses 61 and 62. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So uh, like the first traveler, not number two, but number one, uh, the traveler initiates it, right? He says, I'm going to follow you, Lord. Just let me first say farewell to those in my home. And uh, at once, uh, at first glance, to us again, it seems like a super reasonable thing to say. Say, I'm coming with you, Jesus. 
I'm coming with you. I'm going to follow you. But first, you know, I don't know how long this is going to take. I don't know if I'll ever see my family again. I don't know. Maybe it would be for a really long time. I wouldn't see them. I'm just going to say goodbye first. But like the the last traveler, his misstep is that he limits uh, the time frame to when he's going to follow Jesus to a time frame after handling some earthly concern. The problem is that he says, I will follow you, but... Dot, dot, dot. And Jesus' response is again, no, you don't understand how demanding the call to follow me is. It's not, I will follow you, but... Dot, 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 fill in the blank. It's just, I will follow because I'm everything to you. Nothing wrong with loving your family. It's nothing wrong with telling your family what you're doing and why you're doing it. Again, it is a principle. And the principle says that Jesus comes first. And Jesus responds, verse 62. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, doesn't that illustration just bring what Jesus has to say here to a burning focus? What would happen if you are plowing and you are looking behind you? I mean, just imagine it. You're you're plowing this furrow and you're looking behind you the whole time. The, The ground in Palestine was particularly rocky. So if you are not completely focused at what you're doing, looking ahead, undistracted, not moving, not blinking, looking, you're locked in, unless that's the case, it would be so easy for your plow to just get knocked off course. If you are plowing a field and you want your furrow to be straight, your eyes just must be locked ahead. And this is an illustration of following Jesus Christ. Following Jesus requires this focused, determined commitment. It means having tunnel vision for Christ. It means not being uh, tempted to look over here. Not being tempted by your affections to be drawn over this way. Not looking back at this worldly thing or that worldly thing, but having tunnel vision. Your eyes are on Christ. Your heart is on Christ. Your mind is on Christ. You're focused. He's everything to you. He's your, you're just so committed. That's what he's talking about. This is what following Jesus is tunnel vision. And if you're looking back, the text goes as far as to say, if you are looking back, you're unfit for the kingdom. So ask, what is distracting you from Jesus? What is diverting your gaze from Him? And will you confess those shortcomings? Set your mind on Christ, remembering who He is and what He's endured for you, and ask Him, to help you stay committed. And as you think through those questions, remember, Jesus says, you want to follow me? Well, if you're following me casually or nominally or half-heartedly, then you are not following me. And also remember that following Jesus, as costly as it is, as much sacrifice as it requires, as much uh, focus and prioritizing and, and, uh, and attention that it takes. Following Jesus is worth it. The journey is worth the demand. After uh, the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18 walks away from Jesus because this man is unwilling to part with all of his earthly treasure for the sake of following Christ, Jesus says this to his disciples. Luke 18, 29 and 30. 
And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. He's not saying I'm going to grant your every wish here and now. He's saying if you follow me and you give things up for my sake, you have the gift of me. I will be with you. Rest assured, I will care for you in this life and into the next life. You will be guaranteed eternal life. Following Him is worth it. Whatever it costs you. Jesus endures the demands of His journey to the cross for you. And now you endure the demands of following Him, of that journey, for His sake. The journey is worth the demand. The journey of following Christ is worth the demand. So on that day when, when Constance embarked on her adventure, on her journey, she stood there at the edge of the ship, 17 years old. And I imagine her wondering whether or not this was a good idea. I mean, can you just imagine what was happening inside? I'm leaving everything. I have no idea what's ahead of me. I imagine it's going to be costly and demanding And I imagine her just standing there at the edge of the ship, taking a moment, thinking about it. But in her conviction, she believed that the journey would be worth the demand, so she took that step, she got on the boat, she crossed the Atlantic to America, and it was tough. Um, Like many immigrants, she had a really hard time learning English, never quite getting the hang of it. Uh, She never learned to read or write, she never learned to drive. She always felt a little bit like a fish out of water. She had to fight with such determination to build a life for herself here. But she eventually did. And on top of it, at some point, she she met a man who she ended up marrying. They had two kids. They had four grandkids and they had eight great-grandkids, of which I am one. So my great-grandmother, Constance, died at age 97. And I know that she would look back on her journey from, from, from Portugal to America as costly and demanding as it was, and she would have said, the journey is worth the demand. And I am so confident that if you put your all into this journey of following Christ, that by the time you get to the end of your life, there would be nothing that you, you endured, no cost, no sacrifice that you, that, that you made that wouldn't be worth this life with Christ. But you have to respond to Jesus' words here. You're the one who has to respond to Jesus who endured this journey to the cross for you. And you have to respond. Will you choose uh, comfort or will you choose this costly life with Christ? Will you choose the priorities of the world and of yourself or will you prioritize Christ? Will you Uh, Make your commitment and pour all your commitment into things of this life and to yourself? Or will you make Christ your commitment? And as you answer, just know that the journey is worth the demand. The journey is worth the demand. Pray with me. God, we love You so much and we thank You for Your Word. And it's good for us, Lord, when it rubs up against us and we have to wrestle with it. And it's good for us when it's not necessarily what we... Enjoy hearing. And for many of us, that was this passage this morning, God. It's hard to hear what You're actually calling us to and what You actually had to endure for us. 
But God used that Word to, to strengthen us and encourage us and convict us and challenge us to be more like You so that You can claim more glory through our lives. We pray these things and we thank You and we give You all of the worship. In Jesus' name, Amen.